1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 44, 50 through 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father God, we thank you um, for today. We thank you for every person represented in this room. Lord, I ask that um, we would all be open to what you'd like to speak to us through um, John today. And God, I just I thank you for your presence. I thank you um, that you dwell with us at all moments. God, I ask that um, as we go throughout the week and leave this um, room today, God, that we will leave changed and different and and impacting the people around us. We thank you for the seeds that will be sown today, and we ask that um, in due time they will reap a harvest. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Noelle. Um, how many of you found that to be slightly confusing? <laughs> okay, we got bodies of different kinds. Um, okay, amazing text we just read. Um, generally, when, when we preach, we, we start with a reading like this. And my style is I just want to work through the text. And so uh, if you have a Bible, this was 1 Corinthians 15. You may just keep it open. Uh, Noel read 35 to 44 and then verses 50 to 58. And we're going to comment as we go. This is a, this is a weighty passage. But sometimes I read Paul who wrote most of the New Testament and I think, man, there was a way easier way to say that. Uh, but my hope is that by the end of this, we, we leave with some sense of what he was getting at, but also like some awe and expectation for the beauty of what we just read. So how many of you are familiar with the idea of like taking something to its logical conclusion? Okay. So it's, you know, the language we use a lot. When you're on the playground as a kid, um, there was a form of taking things to its logical conclusion that a lot of kids uh, employed. So if you told someone else like, I really like so-and-so, 
Does it, can, can anyone guess like the logical conclusion of that that many kids on the playground would use? Well, then why don't you marry him? <laughs> I love when the Kilgores are here because I get a laugh out of them, if just them. It's taking an idea, to its, like, and you're seeing it all the way through. So a proposition, a belief, an idea, and tease out the implications of that. And if we teased out the implications to the nth degree, you know, what would be the result? When Emily and I were dating in college, um, I was 19 or 20. She was in Stillwater. I was in Tulsa. And she took a course called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, which is like an intro to, uh, to missions, to God's heart for the world. And Emily is the single most <laughs> obedient person I have ever met in my life. And so when Emily took this course, she learned, like, God's heart is for all people. To reach all people, we must send out missionaries. And Emily, taking all of this to its logical conclusion, thought, I must be a missionary. Therefore, we will someday raise babies in the jungle. <laughs> and, and, like, we're 19 or 20 years old. Like, we're 80 miles apart. We haven't even begun talking about marriage. And I've never been out of the country. And, like, my girlfriend is talking about raising babies in the jungle. And that freaking me out on all kinds of levels. But she was, and side note, we did move to Honduras. So, like, the girl's effective. <laughs> Um, for good and for bad, when we see things through the logical conclusion, it has an effect. Jesus did this in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, well, you've heard that it was said, Don't, do not murder, but I say to you, any one of you who has anger is angry with your brother and says, you fool, has already committed murder against them in their heart. He took the idea of anger and seen to its logical conclusion, it's I want to eliminate this person. An idea, teasing out the implications, can lead us somewhere great or somewhere not so great. There's a quote by uh, theologian J. Gresham Machen who said, What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and to pull down empires. The things that we believe lead to actions, and our actions have consequences, and those consequences can result in flourishing or foundering in harm or healing, in oppression or honor, in life or death. What we believe matters. And so we could look at our world and we see all kinds of consequences for our actions and we could walk those back retroactively and find at their core a belief taken to its logical conclusion and we get the world that we live in today. So we've been talking for the last three weeks about our beliefs regarding resurrection, regarding these questions of ultimate things. What, is, what hope do we have you know, after death, uh, what do we have to look forward to? And what is the big deal about all of that? Does it even matter in the way that we live in our day-to-day -day lives? And we said a couple of weeks ago that uh, when it comes to ultimate things, you know, questions like this about, like, what happens after we die? There's several different approaches that people regularly take. Uh, one of those you could just call agnostic positivity. Agnostic is like, I don't know and I don't think I can know. And positivity is like, yeah, but it'll probably be okay. And so maybe, especially growing up in Tulsa, where we've got lots of churches and lots of pastors with opinions, or maybe you've seen TBN and you've got like charts and spreadsheets where people know to the minute how everything's going to go down, and they could tell you like what the beast looks like and what, you know, the, it's like, holy cow, I, I can't handle all that. And so you say, well, I just trust that God's going to figure it out, and it's beyond me. This kind of agnostic positivity when it comes to ultimate things. Uh, another option might be uh, syncretistic ambiguity, and I've chosen really simple words so that we can all understand it. 
Syncretism is, uh, is David's a missionary to some unreached people group, and he goes in and he shares the gospel, and the people are like, this is great. We're going to add Jesus to our pantheon of tribal deities. Like, we're so happy to have another cast member. Syncretism is this blending of different, of different traditions and religions and ideologies in unclear ways. And so when you go to a funeral, a lot of times it, it feels a little bit like syncretism. You've got a little bit of Jesus in the Bible. You've got a little bit that honestly just sounds like Buddhism, like, like being one with the universe. Or, and then you've got just this amalgam of, of different traditions all muddily mixed together, and it doesn't make a ton of sense. Probably the most common option for, for church people to think about what happens after we die or what is our hope is what I just called Christian or uh, heavenly happiness. So you've got someone that you love who's suffered and, and they, they end their battle and they die and it's of such comfort to know like they're, they're in heaven or the language in the New Testament, they're asleep in Christ, they're in a better place, which is such a great and a beautiful thing. But thinking on the theme of logical conclusions, if we take the idea of heavenly happiness and, and take it to its logical conclusion, if we believe that that's the end game here, what are the implications, what are the ramifications for our life today? If, as a lot of churches and, and, and pastors teach, like the sweet spot in life is to get someone to say the right spiritual magical words so that they'll save their soul, so that at the end of their life, their soul can depart from the earth and go like live in the spirit world where God is. If that's what ultimately uh, people believe, that, that it's, it's the soul that matters. Don't, don't worry about the body, the physical world, but it's our soul that matters, matters, saying the right magical words and floating off into outer space or beyond at the end of all things or when you die. What are the implications of that? If it's the soul that really matters, then we can forget about stuff like justice on earth. It's ultimately not important, you know, things like the environment or, or brokenness, broken institutions, oppression. We can forget about the 15,000 kids who die every day from preventable causes. We can forget about the fact that there are today more slaves than there have ever been in human history. All of that stuff ultimately doesn't matter. In fact, large groups of Christians are not only apathetic about these issues, but they vilify the people who do care about them. Oh, that's like a liberal agenda. Or that's just, that's the social gospel. That's like, that's, that's not a good thing. The idea that what matters is the soul and the rejection of like the physical earthly stuff is what the early church called Gnosticism. This is what Todd talked about last week. And Gnosticism, they said, was a heresy. And we could, we could argue against Gnosticism from page one of our Bible. Page one of our Bible, God created everything, and with each step of creation, He said that it was. He said that it was good, yeah. And when He gets to humanity on day six in the poem in Genesis one, He said it is very good. On page one of our Bibles, we have this affirmation of creation that creation is good, and as we're going to talk about today, resurrection is God's giant, like, oversized foam thumbs up of affirmation of creation. Resurrection is God giving a huge thumbs up, a stamp of approval to creation. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is this brilliant chapter that cuts through the fog of TV preachers and the Left Behind series and pop culture and, like, all of our guesswork.
in 15, 1 Corinthians 15 lays out a beautiful vision that's shockingly clear about Christian hope and what we have to look forward to. And, and like, I think if you went and read it and spent some time with it, you'd think, like, holy cow, it really says that. It would blow your mind. Two weeks ago, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus. It was the week after Easter. And you said the resurrection, it was three weeks ago. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is like the linchpin for all of Christianity. Because if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then we can trust everything that he said and did. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we can trust all of the traditions that he believed himself to be living into, the Old Testament. If Jesus was raised from the dead, it validates the whole story. And in this first creed that we have at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the summary of beliefs, six-ninths of that is dedicated to eyewitness account that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So if we're going to say this is the linchpin of our faith, this matters more than anything, you've got to have some proof. And the proof, according to this, this text, is we've got 500, 600 people who saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus with their eyes, touched him with their hands. They were with him. It was true. And it was that actual resurrection that changed them from mourning to, to like, like jubilation, to freaking out, and, and really to following this belief that he was the resurrected Lord of the world to their death. Uh, last week, Todd, in the, in the text we looked at, like, preached something that's shockingly, like, it's hiding in plain sight. You almost can't believe what, what was read. Paul's explaining that Jesus Christ was the first to be raised from the dead, the first fruits. But there's more resurrection that's coming, that when he returns, we're going to be resurrected. And today, my hope for today is that you leave with some clarity about, like, what is it that we believe and hope for? I hope that you leave like with some, like some clearer language so that when you're sitting at the, at the, at the graveside or where you, when you're with that family member as they're passing or when you're thinking with discouragement about the, the injustice in our world, that your, your heart and your hope are anchored. And I also hope that we leave inspired with a sense of like, okay, if we see this all the way through, what on earth could this mean for our world? So if you have your Bible, look at verse 35, okay? Paul starts this little section with a rhetorical question. People are like, okay, so resurrection's going to happen. If we're going to be raised from the dead, what's that going to be like? What are our bodies going to be like? He says, uh, yeah, if, if we're going to be raised from the dead, what will our bodies be like? And he answers with this analogy of seeds and bodies. And that was the part where Noel was reading where you were like, I, I really hope that John talks about this because I don't have a clue what she's talking about right now. He, he goes to this analogy of seeds. On, a, on Easter, we, we made these, my greatest idea in ministry to date, uh, we made these little wildflower packets, and it says, like, the church name on them, and uh, Bob, would you open that? We opened them up at our house a couple of weeks ago, and they look like brown little boogers. Um, they're, really, they're really not very remarkable. It even looks like there's a little hair in there. Um, it's pretty unremarkable, and we, we took these little things, and we buried them in some flower pots in, uh, in our backyard, and uh, put just a little bit of dirt over them, and, and watered them in, and they've gotten sun, and the most amazing thing is happening, that, and I meant to bring one, for crying out loud, that they're beginning in these little pots, some green stuff is beginning to pop up through the earth, 
And I don't know what these wildflowers are going to look like. Like, they, it doesn't look uniform. It doesn't look tame. But we're, getting, we're beginning to see these signs that what started out as something pretty simple and unremarkable, it's like something you wipe off your pants, like you walk through a field or something, are turning into something that's pretty beautiful and pretty amazing. And Paul uses this metaphor, this analogy of seeds to begin to describe the beauty of the resurrection of the dead. These little seeds are dead. Uh, if I leave them here, like until eternity in the future, these little things are never going to sprout. They're never going to produce life. But you put them in the dirt, you give them some water, you give them some sun, and you give them some time, and something amazing happens. We can see what they are now, unremarkable, but there's beauty and there's life and there's potential that's yet to be seen that's hiding in what's currently dead. And in verse 42, after this extended metaphor, Paul says, this is what the resurrection of the dead is like. He says, the body that is sown, and he's using kind of flowery language here. When I die, they're going to put my body in the ground. They're going to plant me in the dirt. He says, the body that is sown is perishable. It's given to death. Uh, if, you, if you take like a piece of like cooked food out of the fridge and leave it on the counter for a while, you will slowly see it decompose and perish. That's our bodies. Our bodies are, are, are sown perishable. He said, but at the resurrection, they will be raised imperishable, never to die again. He said, the body that is sown is sown in dishonor. It's ashamed. It's disgraced. As we'll talk about in a little bit, the first perversion of God's good creation was body shame. The body that is sown, he says, is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. He said the body that is sown is weak. It's decaying. It's sick. It's diseased. But these bodies of ours, put, put a hand on yourself, these bodies of ours will be raised in glory. And then this is a confusing verse. He says, the body that is sown is natural. That does not mean the body that is sown is physical. He said the body that is sown is like has an internal operating system that's, that's programmed by our sinful nature, that's bent toward destruction. It's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. He says the body that is sown is, is like that. It's natural. It's, it's, it's driven by the sinful nature. But the body that will be resurrected is empowered by the Spirit of God. It's, just, it's what he meant when he said a spiritual body. There's going to be a transformation. Like the seeds that I've got here, there's expansive beauty and strength and creativity and wisdom and capabilities that are lying dormant, that are quietly hidden in all of the people in this room, that one day will be revealed at the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of our bodies. C.S. Lewis said this. This is in The Weight of Glory. He said, It is a serious thing to live in a society of such unseen greatness. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of this overwhelming possibility it is with the awe and the respect due them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. He said, like these seeds that were meant for something so much more, that given the right conditions, new life will emerge out of them. And all of us who are ordinary people with ordinary capabilities, there's, the, there's an internal reality of greatness and beauty and wisdom and strength. And from time to time, we catch glimpses of that in each other. From time to time in this life, we catch glimpses of the glory that's to be revealed, but they're only glimpses and they're fleeting. Imagine the songs that are going to be written out of this community. Imagine the strength that's to be revealed in this community and in the nations. It's all there lying dormant. And then Paul gets pretty practical. In verses 51 and 52, he begins to describe, okay, here's how it's going to go down. I'm going to read verses 51 and 52. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. When he says sleep here, he's talking about death. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Here's what he's talking about. What's today's date? April 29th, okay? 11-19, April 29th. There will come a time in human history that Jesus will return. Now, there are a fair amount of gambling going on out there about what date it will be, but, but uh, Jesus said in Acts 1-7, it's not for us to know the times, so don't, like, put any money on that. It's a horrible bet. There will come a time in human history, I don't know the date and I don't know the time, I don't know how it's exactly going to go down, where Jesus is going to appear, and we're going to see him. Now, how can he be seen all over the world at one point? I've got no idea. Maybe CNN gets involved. Maybe it's like something more transcendent. But he'll appear. Paul used the, the language of like a trumpet going off. And, you know, in, in this time of year in Oklahoma, if it's like 6, six 7 o'clock at night and the tornado sirens go off, everyone like starts paying attention. This is a trumpet that nobody's going to miss. There's going to come a time in human history when Jesus returns, and that is the exact moment where you want to beeline it to a cemetery because it's going to get awesome. Jesus says, we will, Paul said, we will not all sleep. We're not all going to be dead when this happens, but we're all going to be changed. When Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. That means bodies coming out of graves. Those bodies will be transformed. Imagine what it will feel like to see grandma or grandpa, to see your spouse, to see your friend who passed, and for years you've just, man, you've just wanted to touch them. Man, if I could, if I could just touch them. The beauty of resurrection. But we are here, these bodies are still, if we're alive when Christ returns, these bodies are still given over to death. He says, we will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. These bodies that are sick and diseased, given over to brokenness, they'll be changed. This is Christian hope. 
At that time, we'll be changed from perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power, from bodies that are driven by the sinful nature to bodies that are empowered by the Spirit of God. Death will be humiliated and swallowed up in victory. Heaven and earth will join. This is Revelation 21 and 22. And God forever is moving into the neighborhood and living among his people. As Jesus' storybook Bible says, at that time, all the sad things will come untrue and everything will be all the more beautiful for having once been so sad. This is Christian hope. I want you to hear me really clearly. What I am saying and what I'm not saying. Christian hope is the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of our bodies and the recreation of the heavens and earth. Christian hope is the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of our bodies and the recreation of the heavens and the earth. Resurrection. This world, these bodies, this stuff that God created and called good, which has been spoiled by our rebellion, will be renewed and resurrected. And this is Christian hope. The question is, what is the logical conclusion of believing in that today? If I believe in that and not some, you know, syncretistic ambiguity or heavenly happiness, if I believe in that, what are the ramifications of that? And this is where I started to have fun in writing the sermon. And I, I have three words to kind of summarize uh, some of our responses to this. If Christian hope is the resurrection of the dead and the, the renewal of our bodies, the recreation of the heavens and the earth, and if resurrection is God's oversized foam thumbs up to creation, then what are some things that are true? What's, what's, what does that belief lead us to do? The first thing is to anticipate. Anticipate's our first word. Um, anticipate, like, what's actually going to happen. So when you're at the next funeral... Or when you're at the bedside of your friend, or when you're thinking about the injustices in the world that grip your heart and break your heart, the news stories that you hear, and you just have to change the channel because it hurts so bad, or that family member that you have been pleading with God for to change him and to heal him and to make him well, our first response is to anticipate the truth, anticipate what's to come. We need to, we need to clear up our language about death. So uh, we've begun doing this with our kids. And if you start it with your kids when they're young, they'll never think it's weird. They'll just think it's Christian. Grandma or grandpa is in heaven with Jesus. Grandpa is asleep in Christ, but he's waiting for his resurrection body. I can't wait to hug him again. We need to clear up our language. They're, they're in heaven they're asleep in Christ, they're with Jesus, but I've got to add the last part, and they're waiting for their resurrection body, and I can't wait to see them and hug them when I do. We need to make this normal for our kids. <laughs> we do it when we drive by cemeteries. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> Dad, okay. The second thing is if, if Christian hope is the resurrection of our bodies, the transformation of our bodies, the recreation of the heavens and the earth, and if resurrection is God's gigantic thumbs up to creation, then the second thing we should do is honor. Honor. I said earlier, the first perversion of God's creation was body shame. Adam and Eve realized they're naked, 
and they're, and they're humiliated. They're hiding in the bushes, getting the fig leaves. Um, beautifully, in, in that early passages of Scripture, God provides skins to cover their shame. Body shame is so central. And whether, like, someone else would look at you and think, man, I wish I had that body. Like, we all have our own concerns. And not just image, but just, like, bodily health. We have a very fragile relationship with these bodies that we live in. We've got high blood pressure, and, and we've got to feed ourselves and drink, and we get old, and the knees don't work like they used to. And we have a relationship with these bodies. And if what we've said is true, that resurrection is God's affirmation of creation, then I just want to say to all of us, like God said that your body is a good thing. Accept it. Accept the body that God has given you with gratitude, with humility. Care for it. Love it. Steward it. But ultimately knows God who gave you this. And God said that you were good. Because it's, we have a future in these bodies that they'll be transformed and these bodies will be resurrected. And because we believe that, that resurrection is God's affirmation of these bodies, we not only honor our bodies, but we also honor the bodies of others. As followers of Jesus, we refuse to give in to, to the, the thing that we, everyone in the world does, that, which is objectifying other people's bodies, which is cutting up people and dehumanizing them, making them into body parts, not human beings and image bearers. Porn is destroying our world. I heard a, a talk a few weeks ago that porn is linked to all kinds of other sexual deviancy, violence, rape, assault. It's all got porn tied to it. Porn is dishonoring other people's bodies. And as followers of Jesus, we refuse to do that and refuse to let that dominate our lives. And many of us need healing and freedom from that uh, givenness that we have, that temptation we have to objectify and to consume other people's bodies as a commodity. We've got to change. We reject all forms of commoditizing and objectifying bodies because we honor other people's bodies, we're also against violence against bodies, whether, whether it's like violence against the unborn or against the elderly, whether it's violence against a friend or against a stranger. We're against violence because God honors bodies. We're against racial discrimination because God created all bodies in all colors. Jesus honors bodies. These bodies will be with us forever, so we honor all bodies because God created bodies, and these bodies are going to be resurrected. And then the last thing I would say, if Christian hope is the resurrection and the transformation of these bodies, the recreation of the heavens and the earth, and if resurrection is God's oversized thumbs up to creation, then the third task we have, which is, is really, really fun, and it's to create. Resurrection is such a better story than escapism. Resurrection is such a better story than flying away because this place is a hellhole. It's redemption. We need to tell better stories. We need to take the idea of resurrection and a theology of resurrection and run with it and see where it leads us. We need to write better songs and books and stories. We need to put on better funerals. We need to start better businesses. 
We need to launch better projects and ventures and better institutions and practice better therapy and medicine and create better fashion and technology that honors bodies and tells a better story of redemption and a hope of resurrection. We need to act and create and do stuff that evokes a question for which the answer is our hope, the hope of resurrection, the truth of the gospel. When people ask, why on earth are you doing this? We say, because here's what I believe to be true. So we can ask ourselves, where are there signs of death and decay and brokenness in your family, in our city, in your industry, and in our world? And how can you act in ways that provoke a question for which the answer is our hope, for which our answer is the gospel, the hope of resurrection? And there are opportunities for untold, limitless creativity in this. We've not even begun to tap into this. And this is what it means to be a church that's for the renewal of all things. I'm for the renewal of 61st in Peoria. I'm for the renewal of broken institutions that are oppressing people. I'm for the renewal of our body image. I'm for the renewal of systems that are enslaving people, that are making us less than and dehumanizing us. I'm for the renewal of everything that's going to be made well when Christ returns. That's what it means to be for the renewal of all things. The church should be the most creative uh, like business market, like seedbed in, in, in the world. The church should be the most artistic community in the world because we've got the best story in the world. Now, I'll end with this. This is N.T. Wright. He said, Our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that's discovered its brokenness and to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion and to announce resurrection in a world that only knows death. The gospel of Jesus points us and urges us to be at the leading edge of the whole culture, articulating in story and music and art and philosophy and education and poetry and politics a theology and a worldview of resurrection. If we actually believed this stuff and we took it to its logical conclusion, what would be the result in our world? May this church, may the church of Jesus Christ around the world embrace the cross because it's only in embracing death we've got the possibility of resurrection.